0: Good morning, everybody. Summer is over. And I can tell because there's a bunch of you that are here back with us. Good to have you back. I think I saw a bunch of Westmont students come in. Are there any Westmont students here today? (laughs) UCSB will be back, you know, December or whatever. Uh, but if you're here, I just want to welcome you here. For those uh, who are incoming Westmont freshmen, good to have you with us. Gosh, and I hope you take advantage of this month and visit as many churches as you can. There are some wonderful churches in Santa Barbara. Um, beautiful, wonderful people that love Jesus and want to see his kingdom come. And that's kind of the fun part of August, right? September, it gets a little wild and you can't do anything. But in August, as much as you can, uh, check out some of the, uh, as many churches as you can beautiful. Um, I'm Chris, I'm one of the pastors at Reality, and we're a church that just really wants to know Jesus Christ, and to be conformed to his life and his mission, and one of the ways that we do it um, is through the word of God, that's why we take a a certain portion of Sunday morning to kind of get into his word, and I wanted to just kind of uh, explain very briefly where we're going in the future for the rest of the fall, and what we'll be doing this morning Uh, Coming up, starting next week, we will be moving uh, forward uh, to kick off the fall with a new series called Stepping Into God's Promises. This is gonna be a series through the book of Joshua. So we're gonna look at the first half of Joshua. We're gonna look at God's incredible promises, our incredible inheritance, uh, his faithfulness even when we make wrong moves, uh, his calling on us to step into those promises and that inheritance. Uh, I hope that we get a greater view of God's kingdom and our purpose in that kingdom. And then along the way, we'll interact, I hope, thoughtfully with some of the more difficult passages that come up in Joshua, but that is uh, starting next week. Uh, today, we're kind of uh, in between the summer and the fall, and we just got finished with uh, First Peter, which was largely about suffering. If you're a Christian, you're going to be pulled into a lot of suffering and how to navigate that. And where we're going in the fall is into God's promises, what that looks like. And so the, uh, the summer was suffering, the fall is busyness. And so right now, just kind of wanted to take a few minutes to recalibrate us, where, uh, whoever you are and wherever you're going Uh, to recalibrate our hearts and our souls to true north. And so, if you would, without further ado, let's just turn in our Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading from uh, verse 13 through 15, short little passage here centered on Jesus and his interaction with his disciples. And Just to give you a little context of what's happening, uh, Jesus is doing things. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. Uh, crowds are starting to form around him. And he's getting rather popular. And he's getting active. And things are looking forward. And he's looking to be very active and busy. And he pulls this move with his apostles that I, I just want to spend the next 40 minutes looking at. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 3, uh, 13 through 15. And actually going to start in verse 7, but the focus of, uh, of the sermon will be starting in verse 13. It says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, he came to him. Uh, Excuse me, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And here's our text. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you by virtue of the finished work of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to enter into your gates and into your throne room with praise and thanksgiving. Anticipating and expecting a word from God. We believe that your word is active and alive, that it's sharper than a, a double edged sword, and it's able to pierce through the deepest, darkest parts of the human soul to reveal things about us, but also things about you. And so we're, we're asking, Lord, that you would diagnose the human heart today, and that you, the great physician, would prescribe that healing touch. To all of us, all of us in this place, we submit our agendas to you, we submit our plans, and we ask that Christ, your kingdom, would come in this little building as it is in heaven. And that from here it would spread abroad. That people might know you, and trust you, and cling to you, and follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Clovis Chapel, a minister from about a century back, used to tell a story about two paddleboats. They left Memphis about the same time, traveling down the Mississippi River on the way to New Orleans, and they traveled side by side. As they did it, sailors from both boats, or uh, from one boat, looked over at the other one and started making a few remarks about the snail's pace of the other boat. One boat began uh, falling behind, and words were exchanged, and challenges were made, and the race began. And Competition, uh, competition became so fierce and uh, vicious as the two boats roared down the deep south, and one of those vessels started to lag behind. That vessel was running out of fuel. There had been plenty of coal for the trip, but not enough for an actual race. And, As the boat dropped back, this enterprising young sailor, an entrepreneur, took some of the ship's cargo and tossed it into the ovens. Discovered, oh, this stuff works as good as any of our fuel. And when the sailors saw that the supplies burned as well as the coal, they fueled their boat with the materials they had been assigned to transport. (laughs) They ended up winning the race, but they burned all their cargo. Clovis Chapel goes on to basically make this, this statement that we too, you and I, have been entrusted with a certain amount of precious cargo and we too are on a destination to get someplace. And your precious cargo can be anything. It's certainly your relationship with God. It's other things like your spouse, your singleness, your kids, your friends, Uh, your emotional, physical, and spiritual health. The important things in life is maybe another word that you'd call that precious cargo, but you're also on a destination. You are trying to get somewhere and do something. Our lives are similar from the story about the paddle boats. in this, that we have to constantly be asking ourselves, and you should be asking yourself this question today. How much of your precious cargo... Are you willing to destroy to get where you're trying to go? How much of your precious cargo are you willing to destroy to do that thing that you're so bent on doing? This, I think, is what the disciples were facing in Mark chapter 3 and for the rest of their earthly ministry. You have, to, you have to understand from verse 7 to verse 12, this backdrop, this context, painting the picture of what the disciples had in store for them as they look at the one that they're following, Jesus Christ. Look at all the, look at all the needs. There are endless needs surrounding the disciples and Jesus. Endless needs, the sick, the demonized, the tormented, the lonely, the broken, the outcasts, the marginalized all the people that God's heart beats for and that God's people's heart should beat for. The needs are endless. And we see in the the story large crowds crushing him with their needs. Sick people wanting to touch him. Demons making a scene. And for all intents and purposes, it seems like Jesus' ministry is pretty awesome and successful and productive. He has a reputation for miracles. He's healing the sick on the spot, casting out demons. Don't you want to see that in your church? Don't you want to see that kind of stuff in your life? At Vaughn's and Trader Joe's, like demons being cast out while you're in aisle nine? (laughs) Jesus is doing that, and he calls his disciples to do the same things. We should be doing this type of stuff. We can do this type of stuff. It's a glimpse of the kingdom of God coming to our context in which we live, but that is not the point of the story. We see here a picture of Jesus, and through Jesus, what being faithful to Jesus in the city of Santa Barbara, and Goleta, and Isla Vista, and Montecito, and abroad might feel like. Crushing demands all around you, because the needs haven't changed for 2,000 years. They're unending for you, too, aren't they? It could be social needs. It could just be paying your rent. But the needs are there and they crush us. The problems are there and they're overwhelming. The demands are present and they break us at times. The pressure to be productive never seems to go away. And sooner or later, even the most well-meaning, self-controlled Christian faces this option. What cargo Should I sacrifice now to get where I'm going or do what I'm trying to do? We could call this, for lack of another word, the busyness epidemic. Hear this all the time in Santa Barbara I'm busy. And it's not busyness in itself that's a problem, it's our fascination and obsession and addiction and perhaps our slavery to being busy that's the problem. The busyness epidemic. And it never seems to start that way, right? It doesn't matter what zone or sphere of life you find yourself in. Maybe you just got a new job and you are so excited about it. You're like, I just found a new li- a job. It is so life-giving. I'm going to change the world. It's so great. And a year later, you're like, I hate my life. Maybe you just started a new school. And you're like, oh my gosh, this campus is so beautiful. There's palm trees all over the beach. I'm going to go to the beach every day. And then a year later, you're like, so much schoolwork. Or maybe you're just a well-meaning Christian who discovered Christ. You remember that first moment when you opened up the Bible or you had a conversation with someone or you heard a word and in that moment, the Holy Spirit zapped you in the heart and you understood and you were like, Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is that, just that person I've been looking for. There's that passion and intensity. All you want to do is read the Bible and pray and be around other Christians and do nothing but just know Jesus. And yet somewhere along the line, you start doing things for Jesus. And it starts off good. Until you, you start to realize, you look, you look back and you start to realize that you are doing more things for Jesus, so many things for Jesus that you don't have any time to be with Jesus. You look at Christianity and the substance of what it is in your own life and you the only word that you have to describe it is busy. Busyness might be a means to an end. It's not necessarily bad to be busy. Busyness may be a means to a very good end, but in the busyness epidemic, it becomes the end with no end in sight. Elizabeth Colbert, writer for The New Yorker, tells a story about how in uh, 1928 there was an English economist by the name of John Maynard Keynes who composed this short essay predicting something. He, He basically saw how over the years, the country had been progressing, there was a boom in technology, more money was being made, the cost of living was going down, people were being successful. And he predicted, in 1928, that by 2028, the standard of life in Europe and in the United States would be so improved that no one would need to worry about making money anymore, and the result would be shorter work weeks. He predicted that our grandchildren would work about three hours a day. Now that was in 1928. I think we're a little closer to 2028. So I have this question for all of you: How's it going? <laughs> Anybody working just three hours a day? Yeah, some of us, our children, my four-year-old. None of us. That's kind of laughable. That's not realistic. And Kohlberg, in researching this failed theory, discovered over time that underlying it was this problematic assumption, and I quote, it's this assumption that people work in order to, uh, to earn enough to buy what they need. It's that assumption that we're just there to work to get what we need, and once we have what we need, we'll be satisfied, and so Keen's reason, she goes on, as incomes rise, those needs could be fulfilled in fewer hours, workers would knock off early and earlier until eventually they'd be going home by lunchtime and we'll all be just leisurely basking at Butterfly Beach, just sipping our lemonade. She goes on to say, but that isn't what people are like. That's not what I'm like. Instead of quitting early, they just find new things to need. And this cycle is strongly habit-forming. Once you start getting busy in your workplace, it almost seems like that busyness spills into your relationships. And from your relationships into your family life, and your family life into your spirituality, until you just look around at everything that you touch and all you can uh, say to describe it is, I'm busy. Work may not set us free, Elizabeth Colbert goes on to say, but, and here's her diagnosis, it lends meaning to our days, and without it we'd be lost. We're busy for a number of reasons, and some of them are good. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever be busy. But one of those reasons, according to Colbert, is that busyness seems to bring meaning to our life. We feel more meaningful when it looks like we're doing stuff. Whether we're Christians, whether we're working a job, whether we're moms or dads, when we look and feel productive, we feel like our life has meaning and significance. This is her diagnosis. For m- many of us, we don't just become busy to work, we work to stay busy. You ever had one of these conversations? Hey, what are you up to? I'm ah, just so busy. Busy doing what? Things? (laughs) What kind of things? I don't know. I'm too busy to think about those things. They're just so busy. Busyness brings our life meaning, so we think. But I I just want us to ask honestly, does it really? Most of you here are probably pretty busy. Probably all of us are busy. We have to be busy to pay the rent. But is it making you fulfilled? Do you get home every day saying, gosh, that was the best 10-hour day I've ever had? My soul is rested and I am fulfilled. I'm going to do this again for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't think anyone in this building would say yes to that. The objection is, you know, you might, you might say, well, yeah, that's wishful thinking, but you can't not be busy in a city like this. You have, to, you have to work long hours. You have to be crazy in this town just to afford a single bedroom. There's no way around it. And that's true for a lot of us. The solution to busyness isn't laziness. It's just recalibration. Something that I think Jesus is attempting to do in his first disciples and through them to perpetuate through all of his disciples. Look at how Jesus redirects their and our priorities. To be sure, he's surrounding himself with people who are going to be entering into his mission. But first, he, he calls them, verse 13, to, uh, he calls those whom he desired. I love this. This should be our first clue, that he doesn't base it on any merit. It's not like, oh, I've got some demonized people over here and I've got some sick people over here. So uh, uh, uh." social research has dictated that as a Messiah, I should probably surround myself with uh, medical doctors and people who are experienced in exorcisms. He doesn't do that. He surrounds himself with some clumsy, foot-in-mouth Galilean fishermen with no merit of their own simply because he desired them. Just like he desires you, your company, your presence, your voice, your ears. More so, maybe, even than your hands and your feet. At the end of verse 13, their response, and this is always the response, right? To grace that has been fully apprehended. It says, and they came to him. Literally, in, the, uh, literally in uh, uh, Mark's language, they, they left their former way of life to follow this guy. They saw in him a more compelling way to live. Not necessarily an easier way to live or a more comfortable way to live, a more compelling way to live. They saw in him something. And it says in verse 14, and this is where I want everything to just kind of focus in on. It says that he appointed the 12. these He would later name the apostles. And look at this line. So that they might be With him. You see that? It doesn't say he appointed 12 so that they might get busy. So that they might get stuff done. So that they might start a world changing movement. So that they might make a name for themselves. So that they might spread the Christian brand. It says he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. If I were to ask you right now, what, what's God's purpose for you? Why did he save you? What would you say to that? Perhaps some of you would say, well, you know, he saved me to be forgiven. And now that I'm forgiven, I guess, I don't know, I'm just going to hang out in the corner and try not to break anything in his living room. Some of you might say, it's to make things right, and he made me right. Case closed. Some of you might say it's to satisfy the wrath of God. That's why he came, to satisfy God's wrath and save me from my sin. Others would say it's to fix bad people and bad things among whom I am the worst. Others would say it's so that I can change the world. He saved me so that we can change the world. And there is an element of truth to a lot of those things, but that is not the primary reason that God came after you. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. God's purpose for you his primary calling on your life is to be with him for eternity in deep loving communion starting now getting deeper as you go and ending in a flurry of eternal awesomeness that the mind here now simply cannot uh, comprehend Our primary calling as Christians is not busyness, it's withness. He called them so that they might be with him, withness. Withness precedes busyness. I'm not promising you that your life isn't going to be busy. I'm promising you that the Christian life, in the Christian life, uh, withness must precede busyness. We enter into the busy seasons having been with Jesus, filling the reservoir of our soul with the presence of the almighty God who loves to commune with us and speak to us and nourish our souls. This is the reason that you were saved. We all know that verse in John three sixteen: whoever believes in him would, be, uh, would have eternal life. He sent his only begotten son for that reason, but what is eternal life? Jesus, in a prayer in John 17, 3, says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Put those two pieces together. God sent his son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in and follows that son would gain eternal life, which is defined by the Son as knowing him intimately and knowing his Father. That is why people are saved. That is the primary reason why they are saved. You may say, well, what about all the needs? Didn't God go into the world? Didn't Jesus go into the world and meet those needs? Yes, he did. And the needs don't just disappear, and we're called to address them. In fact, in the next line, it says, not only did he call them that they might be with him, but that he might send them out. There's that commission to mission, right? Two, one, to preach, and then he says, and have authority to cast out demons. Another way of looking at that paradigm is that we as disciples are sent out by Christ. There's a sense of sentness in our lives, meaning we don't have to be international missionaries to feel that sense of sentness, but we have that sense of missionary sentness wherever we happen to be. We're ambassadors of God's kingdom, meaning that you've lived in Goleta all your life. Guess what? You're a missionary to Goleta to do what? To proclaim and to display. Proclaim and display what? The kingdom of God. When the king came, he displayed the kingdom by talking about it and by doing stuff that you would expect to happen in it, one of which was casting out demons and healing the sick, ministering to the poor. And so he says, absolutely, I am going to send you out. And he sent the disciples out, and he sends us out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to show it off with the way that we live our lives. And we will be doing those things for him if we're faithful faithful followers of Jesus, right? We will be walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We were created for that reason as well. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you are God's masterpiece, He has created you anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. So yes, on mission to meet the needs for the glory of God and for the good of people. But our first and primary calling is intimacy with Jesus Christ. Mission comes from a deep, reservoir of having spent time with Jesus. We don't nourish ourselves by being lazy and not busy and not doing anything productive. We nourish ourselves by filling our souls before engaging in mission. And this is something the disciples needed to be reminded of over and over, and you and I do as well. In fact, three chapters later in Mark chapter 6, there's an occasion where all of this stuff gets to be fleshed out. And in Mark chapter 6, all sorts of different things are happening. John the Baptist just gets beheaded by Herod, kind of a big deal. Jesus described John the Baptist as kind of an important guy, maybe the most important guy ever, one of the last prophets in a line of prophets, and he gets beheaded at the uh, behest of this, uh, this mad king. And yet in the middle of that, you have to imagine the disciples seeing that and they're like, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. He's bringing his kingdom. Oh, but there's an earthly king. He just chopped the head off of like one of our best spokesmen. What's going on? And yet even in the middle of that, they're casting out demons. He goes off and sends them two by two. They're laying hands on the sick. They're casting out demons. All of this stuff is happening. People are coming to the Lord. Converts are being made. People are being baptized. And they are flipping out, man, And it says in Mark chapter 6, I love this, verse 30, the apostles return to Jesus in the middle of this tension. All of this stuff happening in the world, and yet all of this kingdom just breaking out. And the apostles are like, Jesus, like, oh my gosh. You told us to go do stuff. And guess what, Lord? We just got to be honest with you. We are crushing it. (laughs) I prayed for this guy and like 15 demons came out. It's incredible. Like, Lord, we are seriously slaying it right now. I don't know if you know how awesome we are. You should just come on a road trip with us and see, we're doing it. Like, you can go to heaven any We've got this down. And Jesus, you know, he, his response to that, what we sometimes, you know, what I sometimes wish Jesus would say when I tell Jesus that I'm slaying it, when I'm under the illusion that I'm crushing it, uh, what I want Jesus to say to me or people to say to me is like, good job, buddy. Here's a job promotion. Here's more influence. Here's a greater space for you to do stuff. And you know, here's another platform. Go do it. Get busy. Be productive. But that's not what he does. It says, and he said to them, come away by yourselves now to a desolate place and rest a while. But Lord, we're crushing it. I know. I'm Jesus. But now that you've crushed it, come away from work and productivity and ministry and doing stuff and rest a while. Take a nap. Talk to me. Commune. Let's let's chat. What he's doing here is fleshing out what he told them to do in Mark chapter 3. When he called them First and foremost, to be with him, and then he would send them out. And once they got sent out and they started just actively doing kingdom stuff, he would then call them back to be with himself and to get filled up. Then he would send them out again, and then he would call them back to himself, and then he would send them out again, call them back to himself, filling them up that they might overflow in the world. He would go on to say this elsewhere, explaining Why? In John chapter 15, when he said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I in the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Come back. Come back and and be with me for a little bit. Come back and be with me for a little bit. We are called to be engaged in God's mission for his glory in the city of Santa Barbara and to the nations and for the love of people all around us. We are to have eyes that peer outside of our own little communities. We are to do those things. But that mission has to come as a direct result of a soul that has been regularly, constantly, and deeply nourished by being in the presence of the living God. You were meant for that. That's why one of the core values of our church here is a little saying we've been saying for years. Ministry flows from intimacy. Meaning what we do has to flow out of who we are and who we're with, if that makes any sense what we do has to flow out of being with Jesus. And when I say ministry, I don't just mean vocational ministry like missionary work or intercessory prayer, preaching or anything like that, you know, leading worship. I don't mean vocational ministry. I mean all ministry that all Christians are called to as ambassadors of God's kingdom. Whether it's a teacher in the school system or a custodian or a volunteer, or a nonprofit organization, or a CEO, or a boss, or an employee, or a college student, single, spouse, parent, grandparent, whatever it is. If we really believe that we are sent in the contexts in which we happen to be, we are in some form of ministry. And what you are called to do faithfully has to come from somewhere. You can't, you can't manufacture that stuff. You can't manufacture the supernatural. You can't manufacture the kingdom. It must come through you from above. The only way that happens is by spending time with the king of that kingdom in intimate worship and fellowship and communion because before God calls you to work for him, he calls you to be with him. He called the disciples whom he desired and appointed them that they might be with him. Over and over and over. The danger in this is, you know, getting the cart before the horse. We say ministry flows from intimacy, but functionally we might believe that intimacy flows from ministry. Or to put it in another way, our our spiritual life uh, thrives based on how busy we are for God or ourselves. That is the kiss of death. And many of you already know it. Often trying to, work, you know, and this could be the mindset that says, you know, there's just so much to do. If I get it all done, God will accept me. Or maybe it's vicariously through other people. You know, if I, if I do this right, the church community will accept me or they'll think I'm awesome. I'll gain a, you know, respect in this particular environment or whatever it is. The list of ways we describe it is endless. But it's essentially intimacy, intimacy flows from ministry, and that is a kiss of death. It often leads to burnout and disillusionment and spiritual dryness. And that is the place where Christians begin to wonder, what in the world is the point of this Christianity thing? That's the point where Christians start to get disgruntled with religion and religiosity. That's where Christians begin to jump ship because you were already busy and unsatisfied, but then you just added busy and unsatisfying religiosity to your busyness and unsatisfying life, and you can already do that apart from religion. And so some of you are doing that and you're asking yourselves, what, is the, what do I have to benefit from following Jesus? Well, if that's the version of Jesus that you're following, nothing. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, that ain't the real Jesus. The empty religiosity that some of us are a part of and enslaved to is not part of God's desire for you. Active, engaging mission, yes. Busyness coming along every now and then, Yes. Empty, dry, soul-sucking religiosity? No. Perhaps you're there, you know, you became a Christian in faith and it was marvelous at first, but you slowly drifted back to just doing, 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 doing until that became your identity and over time it became your master. And Maybe today you're asking, how do I get free from this? How do I go back to, the, to that oasis that I used to know? Jesus, once speaking through one of his apostles, John, who's writing the book of Revelation, speaks this very thing. What, should, what do I need to do in this situation? He speaks this to a, an entire church. It was a church in Ephesus. It was very interesting that Ephesus, when Paul wrote the, the book to the Ephesians, they were crushing it. And he was writing to them, writing to them about their faith, and he was like, gosh, you guys are so full of love and the Spirit. Gosh, you're amazing. Keep charging. You're awesome. There was no rebuke in it like you would find in Galatians or Corinthians. The Ephesians were growing and spiritually maturing, and they were on mission. And then Revelation is written 40 years later, as that generation had the chance to grow up. And Jesus, speaking through John, addresses that very church. And you know what he says I'll read it to you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, in other words, Jesus, present with the church. He says, Ephesus, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. You know what Jesus is saying to the church right there? You guys are crushing it, man. You're so on mission. You're so productive. You're doing stuff. Then he says something that is simply not worth the part that has come first. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. In other words, he's saying, hey, you're doing a lot of stuff for me, but you've forgotten about being with me. And I want you right now, what he says at that, at that, uh, in that last uh, phrase, in that last sentence is repent. Repent. Stop doing what you've been doing and come back to what you used to do. In fact, look at the the distance that you have fallen. Go back and do the things that you used to do at first. you remember how just innocent and naive and reckless and silly our lives were when we first started following Jesus? It was so simple and passionate and full of faith. And we were like, Jesus is everything, and I just want to know him. And over time, we complicate it. And Jesus is saying to some of you, uncomplicated, because I'm not as complicated as you make me out to be. I just want to be with you. Things will flow out of that, but I just want to be with you. Repent of your busyness and go back to what you used to do when we were like this. In fact, so deeply does he want his people back that he says, if you don't do it, I'll do it for you. Or to put it in his words, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, I'll, it's almost like he's saying, I'll shake up your success, your, your productivity, and then I'll take it from you, if that's what it takes, to bring you back to me. That is tremendous love, people. That is a burning heart from God for his people. He won't even let your agenda or your ego get in the way of him knowing you. Found this out the hard way. Some of you have been here for a number of years 've heard this story years back in a, this church has been around for five years, and in some of those early years, there was a lot of turmoil and transition not only in the life of the church but in, in individual people's lives. It was a hard time for a lot of us and I felt that as well, and I remember take, uh, taking the helm at this church years ago, almost by accident. Um, When the pastor at the time, Britt Merrick, his daughter was going through a bout of uh, cancer for the fourth time and and died as a result. And so I stepped in and have been here ever since, loving it. But in those early years, you just remember so much transition and turmoil and, and trouble. And to mark that first day, The first day that I took over, the church uh, shrunk in half almost overnight. And I lost a bunch of my friends for a variety of reasons, from betrayal to disqualification to sin to just brokenness. As a result of that, my wife and I felt lonely and isolated. Uh, To top it off, we had our second kid, and he hated me, which... Always makes things easier. He doesn't hate me anymore. He loves me. (laughs) And in the midst of that season, I did what I thought was the Christian thing to do. I just stuck my nose into the ground and just tried harder. Tried to be better and run faster and be busier and get stuff done started to fall apart. A therapist would later tell me that I was psychologically depressed and on the verge of burnout. And if I didn't do anything to get myself help, that I would fall apart and I would take everybody in my life with me. My marriage started to fall apart and it wasn't because of Brianna. And I got so low that it started to threaten that veneer that Christians sometimes have where they, they try to fake it because that's what you do when you're a Christian. Like, all these other Christians are looking at you, so you gotta put on a veneer just so everybody knows that you've got it all together. And so I did that until it got bad enough where it felt like a lampstand was being pulled away from me. And that's where I got desperate. And I've shared this story with you. If you want to listen to that story, there's like three sermons out there. I did two. Chelsea Wong did another. It's like the most viewed sermon in the history of reality. Chelsea's. It is, (laughs) actually. It's really good. And that Her message reverberated through a lot of us, I think. A lot of us began to get really desperate, myself included. And to make a long story short, there were really three elements in that that healed me, brought me out of that. I'll just share two. One was this understanding of our emotional health, how God made us. Uh, That that self-awareness of that emotional side of the human soul being able to look deeper than, than the surface and the veneer to see what's really going on for me, that, that was like, oh man, I've got a lot of bitterness and anger. I have a lot of people pleasing. Uh, I have thin skin, like just so many things that I was ashamed to look at that had to get prodded and brought to the top for God to heal. So there was a sense of like opening and looking deep into the darkness. But, One thing I never shared in those weeks past was that there had to be more than just looking into the darkness. That would scare most people, looking into the darkness, Chris's soul. There also had to be a filling of the darkness with light. And for me, that was prayer, you know. I had grown up my whole life praying one way through intercession, which is a wonderful and powerful way to shake the heavens. But I turned it into another way to be productive. Little by little, people, like Julie Barrios from San Francisco, Ben Patterson, just began to teach me how to just be silent and to just be in God's presence. And in those moments of looking deeply in at the mess that I really was and was afraid to look at and allowing the presence of God to fill it and to speak to me. You begin to restore me, and heal me, and put my family back together, put my mind and my soul and my heart back together. But you have to understand, that happened because of the original call of God on all disciples' lives. I am first and foremost calling you to be with me, not primarily to work for me. Some of you are worn out today, And I just, I want to ask, is it possible that it's because you've lost sight of your calling? Oh, no, I haven't. I'm doing more for the Lord than I've ever done. You don't even understand, bro. Up there preaching your little sermons. I've got a non-profit. I'm healing the sick. I'm making socks for orphans. What? (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. But I, I don't mean that calling. I mean the one thing. That Mary, over Martha, so discerned. The calling that matters more than any. That you might be with him. Have you forgotten that one? And if you have, I don't want you to feel guilty or ashamed. I want you to be drawn back by the kindness of God. Who, guess what? Longs to have you back. Not just now, but do you understand that he created you for this purpose? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 5 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Do you believe that? Before the world existed, listen. Listen. Before you had an opportunity to do anything or fail at anything, God wanted to be with you. And he takes great pleasure in being with you. That's a whole lifetime of adventure and struggle. And we'll try to work that out as the months go on, but let's just just dip our feet in the pool this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition in worship through song. And, you know, there's maybe ways that you might want to reconnect this morning. Through song, through singing, maybe what you don't feel is an act of faith. Joining with the assembly, doing it together. Maybe you just need to be in that, in that quiet place. If you want, I invite you to, you know, there's... Carpets and floor all over the place. You don't have to be in your seat. If you're the type of person that just needs space, make some space. Get on your face and get before the Lord. Repent of the busyness and the idol of productivity and come back to your Lord. For some of you, you need a visceral way of, of view of seeing God. For you, you might take the sacraments, the bread and the, the cup and taste and see that the Lord has been good to you. There's sacraments to the uh, right and to the left, also up on the mezzanine floor up there, there should be. Maybe you don't even have the words to pray to God. You don't even know what to say. There's prayer teams to both sides, also upstairs. Love to pray for you. Anything that you need. Let this next few minutes be a time of ministry. We love to worship here, and we, we usually aren't in any hurry. To you, I would say, slow down marinate allow the Holy Spirit to lift your eyes upon the person who most deeply matters and let him minister to you today Heavenly Father may your will be done today may you remind us of your unending faithful love that you are truly slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness that your name is great that your kingdom is coming, that your church is unstoppable because of you. In the midst of all of that excitement and all the suffering that comes with it, we just want to ask God that you would minister to us, that we would learn to drink deeply at the fountain of life. We just declare together with the disciple so accurately confessed. Where else will we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. May your words spring into our hearts today as we worship.